0: you remember? Maybe you were a young child. Maybe it was some older years. I know for me, I mean, I grew up in a great Christian home. Every Sunday I would be seated where you're seated, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights too. We seemed to be at church a lot growing up. And um, we had prayers at every meal. Growing up on a farm, my dad was around quite a bit as well as my brothers and my mom. She would fix every meal. There wasn't a lot of dysfunction necessarily in our home. Not saying that we were perfect. But I thought that was normal. I thought everybody had a home with a mom that stayed home pretty much and a dad that worked hard and provided a living and had siblings that pretty much all fell in line in one way or another. But then I started to realize that other people don't have those kinds of homes always. Maybe you grew up in a home that was not like that. Maybe it was more dysfunctional. But then there's some people that don't even have that. They don't even have that kind of home. There's people today as a result of Hurricane Matthew, particularly in Haiti, that their home's pretty well destroyed, but they didn't really have much of a home anyway. You and I, we came out of some type of residence, most likely this morning, even if it was a a small little apartment that's not as big as we'd like. But when was the first time that you came across a homeless person? And what did that do to your spirit? Did you sort of want to pause and think about it, or did you just sort of want to walk on and, and, and be, you know, not overtaken in your heart maybe by it? I remember when we took our oldest son, Ryan, 11 at the time, to China to adopt uh, our daughter, Grace. I think it was probably the first time he had seen a homeless person, and this homeless person was outside of a, a McDonald's in Guangzhou, and, and it, it, it just messed with him. And we had to go back a couple different times to, to help the guy get some McDonald's and some other food because he said, Dad, we've got to help that person. Why is it that our hearts get extended to another person when there's brokenness? Is because we're all human. And we begin to empathize and to see people and their need. But then something strange starts to happen because sometimes it, it happens over and over again. A homeless person, you know, you, you go to the beach or a certain part of town, whatever it may be, and, and you, you just... You start to become a little insensitive to it, and it's such an overwhelming problem. And what can you really do anyway? And so we just continue to move forward and not think about the homeless. But it's, it's not necessarily just the homeless. It can be someone who is, is, is down on life. Maybe it's a, um, a, a single mom with several kids, and she doesn't have many means. Maybe it's somebody who is oppressed in an justice system. Maybe it's somebody who um, doesn't even have family and they're young and they're they're in an orphanage. Do you see those people? Do you think about those people? God sees those people and he thinks about them a lot. And he has something to say about that. And that's what we're going to talk about briefly here this morning. Now you need to know this. Full disclosure. I don't want to talk about this. Because I don't know where I'm at, and I don't know how obedient I really want to be in it. Because I get overwhelmed. I have all kinds of excuses, too. And I've got a life to live and things I want to pursue. Why should I care? God, you have other people that are more sensitive. They have gifts of mercy. I really don't have a lot of gifts of mercy. That's one of my excuses, right? I don't know if I want to talk about this. I, I remember when I first had um, had opportunity to do urban ministry. It was in Patterson, New Jersey. Any of you have been to Patterson, New Jersey? Patterson, New Jersey's not the loveliest of places. And uh, me and uh, another gal from seminary, we spent a semester going down once, sometimes twice a week, to minister at an African American church, and and I was oblivious to a culture where there's so many children that have no fathers, and I discipled a small group of young boys, and I think they did more discipling of me than I did of them, even as much as they wanted to run around and cause problems. And I remember taking them into New York City. They'd never been to New York City. It's just across the river. Never been there. And then they came back with some stuff that we did not buy. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Great discipler from the seminary. Okay. But that messed with me. And I remember telling my friend as we were driving back from Patterson, New Jersey, to Nyack, New York, where I was in graduate school, and we were talking about the burden of the needy people. And it wasn't that the whole church was needy. There was a lot of great people there. But you just saw some of the poverty and the brokenness. And I just had to admit, I said, I can't do this. I sure hope God doesn't call me into urban ministry. I can't do it. I, I said, you know, I, I think sometimes it would be easier to die for Jesus than it would be to live for Jesus in a place like I couldn't really believe I heard what say out on my mouth. But I still wrestle with that today. I still wrestle with that today. It's interesting. I was, I was thinking through some other final thoughts late last night. It must have been midnight. I don't why I wasn't going to bed. And, and I got a text from one of my sons, which that's typical. They have no idea that people go to bed. My son, Zach, he's a sophomore at Cal Baptist University. And Zach is, he works in the spiritual life office there and he helps head up ministry teams. It's one of his jobs he has on campus. And uh, he was with a bunch of people and he had texted me from Lincoln Park in San Diego. And they were staying over all night in the park to try to identify with poverty and brokenness. He's a better man than I. He actually was looking forward to doing it. I don't, I don't know.
1: And it's not that I don't
0: want to, to empathize and befriend and encourage. And, and some of you, even in this very room here, may have been homeless at one season in your life. I know it's true. Hard times hit. And it's not that I don't care. It's just I don't know how to embrace it. You see, we can try to serve other people in brokenness or unjust situations, out of a sense of duty or self-centered gain, and that's usually what the world tells you to do, right? Um, I grew up with uh, the Jerry Lewis, uh, uh, what do you call those telethons, right? Raising money for was it muscular dystrophy, right? You know, and on there he would say something to the effect: "Is if you give and you phone in money right now, you can go to and look at the mirror, and you can look into the mirror and say that you're an honorable person and you're a loving person if you give right now." Now, what's that? It's a motivation out of a self-centered thing to make yourself feel better. Or in Christian circles, and, and trust me, I, I, I'm not going there this morning in case you're worried about it. In Christian circles, we can. You know, put up the banner of it's your duty, it's your duty, it's your duty to do this. But if I serve broken and disenfranchised people out of a mere sense of duty because there's guilt or a sense of self centeredness, like it's going to buck me up and, and make me feel better or stronger as a human being, then it will not last very long. One of the reasons I'm speaking on this today, it's in the heart, of course, of the book of Amos. We're spending a few weeks here, is because um, I don't think the evangelical church does a very good job on this subject. At least the churches I grew up in. Maybe you're different. But you cannot, you cannot take your scriptures and work your way through them without seeing God has a heart. For those people, even when your heart has become desensitized to them. And we got to deal with that. We've got to deal with it as individuals. We have to deal with it as family units. And we have to deal with it as a church. And I don't want to bring this to the church because you know, part of me is like, well, we've got all kinds of things, God, that we're trying to do and press forward. in. And why would you, why would you have us as a people try to you know, you know, buff up in the whole area of ministering to broken, disenfranchised, abandoned, homeless? Uh, poor people. All kinds of other people around here to reach. Well, here's the reality. A lot of people around here are in that category. They may not be living on the street, but they're living in brokenness. They're in dire situations. They would sing that song with us and pray as we prayed this morning. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And so we have a responsibility as a church to do what the scripture teaches Now, the scriptures teach clearly that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be proclaimed. We need to have truth. We need to see redemption and change happen in the hearts of people. Because all have sinned and gone astray, right? And so we preach the good news of the cross of Jesus. He died on the cross, forgiveness of our sins. Invite Christ into your life to be the Lord and the leader of your life. He'll change and transform your life. Friends, we have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ daily in small ways and even in big ways. But it's just not the proclamation of the gospel that our world needs. And definitely the world that we live in today. It needs a demonstration of the gospel. And so at every turn, you see Scripture calling out to God followers, whether in the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, followers of Yahweh, or New Testament Scriptures, followers of Jesus Christ, that we need to place our worship in our hands, not only that are lifted, but in our hands that are extended. This book of Amos... Amos 5, 24, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like ever-flowing streams. God speaks prophetically through this farmer prophet who left the southern part of the Judah area to the northern part of Israel. He spoke through him to connect this message with the people in the pews, in the seats. The religious people. People who thought that they were doing well. This passage that I want to look at today, two of them actually Amos 6, and then we're going to go back to Amos 5, where that verse was we just read. The prophet says this to those people What sorrow awaits you who lounge in luxury in Jerusalem, and you who feel secure in Samaria? You are famous and popular in Israel, and people go to you for help. But go over to Cana and see what has happened there. Then go to the great city of Hamath and go down to Philistine city of Gath, and you are no better than they were. And look at how they were destroyed. You push away every thought of coming disaster, but your actions only bring the day of judgment closer. How terrible for you who sprawl on ivory beds and lounge on your couches, eating the meat of tender lambs from the flock and of choice calves fattened in the stall. You sing trivial songs to the sound of the harp and fancy yourself to be great musicians like David. You drink wine by the bowlful and perfume yourselves with fragrant lotions. You care nothing about the ruin of... Of your nation, therefore, you will be the first to be led away as captives. Suddenly, all your parties will end. The sovereign Lord, who is sworn by His own name, and this is what He is, the Lord God of Heaven's army says, "I despise the arrogance of Israel, and I hate their fortresses. I will give this city and everything in it to their enemies." Now we looked at the other day that a Scripture isn't against wealth. It's not against wealth by any means. In many ways, sometimes wealth can be shown as a blessing of God. But it is against how we acquire wealth and what we do with our wealth. And the word throughout Scripture exhorts us strongly to not be captured and taken away by materialism. He was speaking this to people who are in the Christian ranks And they were held captive by materialism and power and success. In that culture, you had the haves and you had the have-nots. There really wasn't much of a middle class. And God saw this and his heart was broken time and time again for it. So he comes to them with this warning. And he says, you know, your parties are going to end. You're going to be led away as captives. It's done. And sure enough, 35 years after this word, Israel was taken captive, never to return as a a ten-tribe nation again of Israel. It's going to come. You know, it's one of those weeks where you're a little bit over the top, maybe not if you were living along the coast, been through hurricanes or whatever, but you see the track of the hurricane coming and they're saying, you know, it's going to go through here and it's going to come up along the Florida coast and, and every ones of us maybe been there and we're thinking about that. Maybe we have some loved ones, family up along the coast and and into South Carolina and so forth. And the warning's out there. It's a coming. It's going to happen. Now, we don't know where landfall is and all that kind of thing. But you don't sit there and watch a hurricane on radar and go, nah, nah, it's out of here. I'm going to the beach today, and I'm going to surf right when it's time for it to hit, they say. He's do to do that. It's a warning, right? And when you have a warning, you better give heed. Well, Amos was giving warning over and again to them. They didn't want to hear his voice. They didn't want to have him sit and sort of share the heart of God, so they just continued on their merry way. I, 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 got a, I got a football party to go to, and then there's some other friends we're going out uh, tonight, wine country, and it's like, no, don't bother me with that. And I think God wants to come into each of our lives, beginning with my own, and say, wake up, there is injustice in the land. There's injustice in the land, and there are people that are needing, needing attention from me. That's why in Amos 5, the chapter before, he says, How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellions. You oppose good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. A lot of times, I mean, bribes were the mainstay of the day. But if you're poor, you can't bribe anybody. And so justice did not come about for you. Verse 15: hate evil, love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of God's people. Seek God and live was our exhortation last week. So also hate evil. Love what is good. Verse 21, chapter 5, I hate all your show and your pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and the solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And in the New Living Translation, a different way of saying Amos 5.24, instead I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So what scriptures teach? If you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. If you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. But if you give to the poor, then you are giving to the Lord, And this isn't just out of monetary means. It's part of your life. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And He will reward them. He will reward them for what they have done. Now, we hear that. We agree with that. We can pocket that, we can say, God, help me recall that, and then we can walk right back into our everyday world and really not do much about it. Here are some um, common excuses for not helping the poor, and I probably uh, can mark off a majority of these. They don't deserve help. They got themselves into poverty. Let them get themselves out of it. Get a job. Go work. Now, I understand that that may very well be true of a lot of people. They've got into a codependent kind of state, right? And that codependency is maybe on the government, maybe on handouts, whatever it may be. And so they are not encouraged to be able to do what they're called to do, take their God-given abilities and make life happen but the reality is a lot of them aren't that way and a lot of times um, this excuse really just falls on deaf ears because if you look at what God did for us he could have given a lot of the same excuse don't you think how about you and me in our sin God said you don't deserve help look at you you got yourself into this mess might as well just get yourself out of this mess Right? But that's an attitude that's easy to carry. Another one, God's call to help the poor applies to another time. Another time, maybe another place, another set of people. We do not know any people that are really poor. Yeah, there's some that, you know, having a hard time making ends meet, but not the kind like you just showed on the video, the street poor. I I just don't know them. And so, I'm good. I'm good about I have my own needs and my own family to help? Not question. I'm there, right? I'm there trying to make ends meet, mortgage to pay, other things to do. I'm helping my family. It's not me. I'm giving my life away to my family. My dad he used to have this habit. It's funny the things you remember of your parents, right? They keep telling me that, that certain things I say and do that my kids are going to remember later. Like one of the phrases I sometimes say when somebody's in trouble, I don't say it now because they're all older, of course, pretty much. But when they were younger, I used to say the phrase, you know, you did not want to have to pull out a whip or something like that. And I would just look at them and say, do you want it now or do you want it later? I don't know why I said that, right? And, of course, the answer is always later. Later. Well, my dad, he used to always open up his wallet, and he would show me when he was down to his last dollar. He'd say, I only have one dollar left in here. Or sometimes he'd open his wallet, and he'd say, I don't have anything left. I've given till I can't give anymore. Well, that may or may not be true, right? But we think, I'm giving to my family. I'm giving away. There's, there's, but, but Scripture doesn't allow that as an excuse. Number five, any money I give will be wasted, stolen, or spent. The poor will never see it. If I give it to some organization, they'll probably just use it for administrative overhead and to pocket the people that are working for them. Or it'll be used unwisely, and they'll go and buy something that they really shouldn't be buying, right? That will always be the case. It'll always be the case. It doesn't mean you don't have wisdom to who you give money to, and you don't have some street smarts. I'm not, excuse me, I'm not very street smart on some things. I have learned. Uh, There was a time that I worked in urban ministry in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I learned a lot of street smarts in that environment for a period of time. But not an excuse for the biblical call. I may be taken advantage of and become a victim. That's true. That's true. But as an excuse, I don't know where to start, and I don't have time. And then number eight, my little bit won't make any difference difference. How many of those could you mark off? That's where we go. Are you getting a little uneasy, about ready to have service end and go? I was about ready to get through this. I don't know why I picked Amos. I I know why, but I've wrestled. I've struggled with this series on a personal level, as well as even how to capture the heart of God. But this is what you need to understand throughout Scripture. God stands with the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Look at Zechariah 7, 9 through 10. It's a great verse. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. This is critical for you to understand. If you're not going to be serving the poor and the unjust out of a sense of duty or self-centered, you know, uh, feel-good kind of uh, effort and move to more of a biblical heart for God, you need to understand this point, that God stands on the side of the widow, the poor woman, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. He stands on the side of them. Now, God is God of the universe. Jesus, right? King of all kings. Lord of our lords. Those people in prominence... They did not humble themselves, the gods of the ancient world did not humble themselves to minister to the people on the bottom of the totem pole. They dealt with the people on the top. That's why they, in one sense, revered them or obeyed the kings or or the the priests that reported to the kings or whatever it, it, it may have gone on, because it was perceived that the gods favored the people at the top, not that the gods favored the people at the bottom. But then through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, you see time and time again that God favors the people at the bottom. What? Who does that kind of thing? Think about it. The, the, the oppressed, the widow, the poor woman. God, you know, it's like, well, let's take care of herself. And this is a culture that men ruled the day. And God's coming and saying he's deferring to the women? The poor women? What kind of God does that? The fatherless? Paternal kind of uh, thing where you had your tribe, your family, your people, and and we're dealing with us, we're raising up a lineage here. And he says he comes to help the fatherless, the orphans? What about the foreigner? That, you know, you, you, you didn't, and I know we got all kinds of discussion going on with the whole immigrant thing. Okay? And it can go down a lot of different paths. There are laws that need to be abided by, and there are structures in a society, and I am in favor of all that. All right? However, that being said, we can move and swing to this other side where we don't have compassion for those who are immigrants or who are foreigners or the scriptures, I don't have time to go into the words behind it, who are refugees. And God, this God, this Hebrew God says, you treat those people like your own family. What? What? And the poor? The poor are favored? This was radical stuff. There's a story in 2 Kings 5, I believe it is. Uh, Naaman, he was a Syrian general. And uh, he had leprosy. It was a very astute and very conquering, and and he heard that he could maybe be healed uh, from the Israelite... um uh, Prophets, a prophet. And so he thought, I'm going to go into Israel and I am going to get my leprosy healed. And it was common for his day then because you were going to go and visit the king for the king to give credence to talk to the prophet and the prophet would heal you. So he got a bunch of money. He got, I think, 10 sets of premier clothing. He had documents showing that he had credentials and favor in his land. And he went to the king of Israel. Naaman did. And he said, I want to be healed. Can you get me in contact with the prophet? Here's all this stuff because God favors the rich and the powerful. You know what the king of Israel did? He ripped his clothes, sackcloth and ashes kind of thing. And he says, who am I? Who do you think I am? I am not somebody I can tell God what to do. I can't tell a prophet what to do. I, I have to submit to what the prophets are. The God of Israel doesn't work this way. He found that out. He made his way. This was radical stuff. That God stands with the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. So a pastor by the name of Tim Keller, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, has been there for 20, oh, maybe almost 30 years. Knocking it down, trying to make things happen in that city, multiplying churches. And uh, in fact, a lot of... Uh, some of the thoughts and framework that really stirred in my soul, even for this message, come from Tim and some of his works and his exhortations. Uh, Tim was doing a series on the seven deadly sins, and uh, you, you know what? Some of the I thought about doing seven deadly sins. That's a heavy series, but you know, you got pride, you got anger, you got lust, you got gluttony. All right, so they're going through. The seven deadly sins at the end of every service, they had sort of like a, an altar call or people to come and to, to pray for God, to, to free him of that, for them to make things right, men's or whatever. He got to the week on greed. He opened up the front. Nobody came. Because we think, oh, I don't have a problem with that. I'm just trying to make ends meet. I don't have a problem with greed, covetousness or something like that. We are blinded to the reality of us being in privileged positions. Privileged positions by which maybe God, if he walked through the door, would say, it's great to see you all, I love you, I died for you, that kind of thing, but where are the poor and the broken? I, I'll, I'll, I'll catch you next service next week. i got some ministry to do. God's favor stands in the way of the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Matthew 25. You familiar with that verse? That whole section. I have time to go there to read it. But it talks about on the final day, and God separates those who make it and those who don't. And those who make it uh, had certain qualifications. Those who didn't. And the word comes that says, "Hey, I was, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me something to drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't come and visit me." And the person's like, what? When did we see you hungry, Jesus? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked? When did we see you in prison? And Jesus turns it right around on them. Remember what he says? He says, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Depart from me, I never knew you. Could it be that in our evangelical circuit that we operate, that we have so pressed back against the social gospel that we've swung at the other direction and we don't have any pulse or heart or touch or activity going on to really minister into the lives of the poor the broken, those who are doing injustice, being done injustice? Lord Jesus, check my heart on this. When did you come to me? When did you say this, this, and this? And I did not obey you. I did not follow in those regards. There's three aspects of biblical justice that I want to mention briefly because there's a lot of call for justice, especially in the politics of today. Everybody's calling that there needs to be justice, but nobody can agree on what justice is. Is it is it, It's offending the cause of some particular group that feels like they're being oppressed, whether on a college campus or in a workplace or in the marriage arena. I don't know. There's those kinds of things that, that do have a part of social justice. But biblically this is what's true. And three aspects or maybe more. Equal treatment, racial, and social equity. Leviticus twenty four, twenty two. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. In other words, we don't have a set of rules for this person and a set of rules for that person. We treat everyone equal. And part of us would say, well, of course. But guess what? Where did you get that heart for everybody being treated equal? It wasn't true in some of those ancient cultures at all. It was commonplace even in more modern era time, right? The caste system in India. And I got friends that are from India. They minister in India. The residual still of the caste system. You're a part of the backward caste or you're up here in the elite class. The caste system. That's commonplace. But in America, we we say justice for all, right? Well, we get it from the word of God. Because God has that heart. All people are created in the image of God. And so there needs to be equal treatment, racial and social equity. But the scriptures go beyond that. That's usually maybe we get to that in the culture. It says this. It says there needs to be special concern for the vulnerable populations. Proverbs 31, 8. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now, this goes beyond charity to advocacy. You and I, we need to speak up. Now, I have a special needs child. I also have an a child that was adopted and as a parent you want to speak up for their rights okay and that's true but who are the vulnerable populations scripture's teaching those we just referenced some of them and scripture teaches that we need to speak up for them to move past just a charity aspect and really have advocacy for them some of you maybe spend your weeks sometimes fighting for people as an advocate, good job. But maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody that doesn't get the right health care treatment and you're in there with the doctors. You know, Maybe it's somebody else that's been done wrong in a business situation and you're trying to intervene. All right? God's praiseworthy. God calls you as an individual to do that. So we need to rise above just equality for all and take initiative with special concerns for vulnerable positions. And then thirdly is generosity, sacrificial generosity. And Acts 2.45, and we know this was the Christian community, but it was commonplace. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Those are aspects of biblical justice. Two critical points as we close. Believing the gospel will move us to give to the poor. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8 and 9, this section has to all do with giving, all right, monetary means. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you might, through his poverty, might become rich this is how it starts to work for me. This starts to get a hook into my soul. God, He favors those at the bottom and He took His high position in the heavens and came down to this earth to be one of us, to walk with us, experience brokenness, to experience injustice. Think about that. He was born to a poor family. They had two pigeons when they went to do their sacrifice at the temple. That was poor. God himself became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And so if I begin to believe the gospel, it will begin to move me towards the poor because this is what God does. God moves his heart is inclined towards those who are poor and broken. And he showed that because I was poor and broken in spirit and dead in my sin. And he came to me. And so when I participate in helping needy people, I participate. Not out of a sense of duty or out of a self-centered kind of, oh, look at me, what it's going to do for me. I do it because of the love that was given to me through Christ. And I exemplify his life back with others. So I will sacrifice, I will set aside, and I will spend my time with commoners, even though they will never, ever improve my life on a statistical or social scale with the world. I'm just there. I minister his grace and his love. And in doing that, there is a beauty that comes out. There's a beauty that calls me forward. So it's not a duty, but it's a beauty. It's, it's a sense of really sacrificially identifying with Christ. That whole comment, I think it's easier to die with Jesus than to live with Jesus sometimes. Well, that's probably true once and done. If you die for Jesus, as a martyr, right? But I can choose to daily die for Jesus and be with somebody in their pain, their frustration, their brokenness, their poverty. Because that's what Jesus would do. And I have community with Jesus in that moment of giving my life away to help someone. Whether it's charity or advocacy, I participate in the gospel. Believing in the gospel will move us to give to the poor. Secondly, ministry to the poor is a crucial sign that we believe in the gospel. Micah 6.8 is a very famous popular verse for social justice kind of things, but it says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Did, Did you know that this is what the gospel is? Think about what our world's clamoring for. Oh, it's like get the right politicians, the right political party. Friends, it's the church. It's the kingdom of God. As we live out the beauty of what Jesus came to do on this earth and we live it out with others, the world's in desperate need of this. And ministry to the poor and the broken and those who are done injustice is a crucial sign that we believe in the gospel and we hold out the hope of the gospel. Not merely proclaiming, 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 but demonstrating, demonstrating, demonstrating his beauty. Oh, what a powerful change would happen. Maybe not in the world. Let's just take our neighborhood. Let's take our network, our oikos, our our relationships that we have. And let's give our life away. To those who are needy. How powerful would that be? How many people have walked away from the Christian faith because they didn't know this is what it was about? I'm going to ask Joe to come. We led off with a new song. Let justice roll. I'm just going to ask the band to play us back into that song. We need the Lord every hour we need Thee. But what we need him to do is to give us a place of conviction. Not out of sense of guilt, but a place of conviction out of a sense of of inspiration to the beauty of the gospel. To be able to do what God has called us to do. Let justice rule is the name of the song let it roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream the word righteousness is described here is relational righteousness is justice in action justice in action and may we let it roll through our lives so i'm going to ask the ushers to prepare to come and pass